for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. First Corinthians chapter 3, we're in a series entitled United Together in the Gospel, and it's a study of the book of First Corinthians. And we're really laboring for one thing in this study, to live as a people united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in all things, in all of life, in every circumstance, in every situation, in everything, we labor for one, one thing, to live united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to talk about being united to build God's temple. United to build God's temple. In the book Extreme Ownership, written by um, Navy SEALs Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Man, if you've got names like that, you have to be a Navy SEAL, right? I mean, it's like God has predestined you to be a SEAL because anything else is not going to... I mean, like, uh, it's a chef named Jocko. Okay. You know, I mean, I mean you've got to be a SEAL. And, and they wrote a book on leadership, and in, in this book... One of their stories to illustrate their principle of unity is a story of the final week of SEAL training. And I'm trying to relate to you something I have really no concept of, but I want to act like I do because it makes me feel better about myself and I can live vicariously through that, right? But in the, in the final stages, they recount that most of the men that are still in the training by this point are going to survive and make it. They're in their final stages. But they've been broken up into teams of six. And in these teams, the whole point of this exercise is to simply build unity so that they learn to rely on one another. And in the midst of this, they're running the same exercises successfully over and over and over again. And they basically take a raft, they run down the beach a half mile or so, they enter into the water, they swim out in the raft without paddles, they go out around the buoys and through an obstacle course, and they come back. And they do this for like 12 or 18 hours nonstop. I mean, two or three times, hey, good competition, guys, let's call it a day. 12 to 18 hours, that's crazy, you know. And, and they're exhausted. They've always been training for weeks, and, and mentally and emotionally and physically, they're just completely exhausted. And, and the whole point of this exercise is to break them down individually so that they learn to rely on one another. And they recount that in this particular exercise, Team 2 uh, was not doing well. They uh, were not led by one of the stronger leaders and because of this he couldn't command the team very well and, and the team was just beginning to disintegrate. They were yelling at each other, uh, using profanity and just angry at each other and everything was each other's fault and they never won. And if a team won one of the uh, exercises then they got to sit out the next one. So every time you won you got to rest before you went back. That's invaluable when you're doing this for 12 to 18 hours, right? 
But this team, too, never won. And they were just constantly bickering and at each other. But team six was quite the opposite. They were led by a very strong leader. And, and even though the book recounts the team itself wasn't overly built or stacked with strong guys, the leader was able to unite them. And he said every time they competed, they won. They would rest, they would win. They would rest, they would win. Because it's like they moved as one team. And, and as they continued to go through this, they, they turned to one another and said, what can we do to help them? And one of the leaders said, why don't we just swap leaders and see if that makes any difference? And that's what they did. They took the leader from team six and the leader from team two, and they said, swap teams. And immediately, team two, in the very next race, began to perform better and won that race. And team six, though they didn't win the very next race, continued to excel in their performance and actually turn the attitudes of the SEALs on one team that were fighting into a united front. And to build up the other leader that was failing with one team was now succeeding with the other. You see, friends, unity makes all the difference. And unity makes all the difference because in the church, it fuels God's people for kingdom mission in the world. 1 Corinthians helps us look at the difference that unity can make as we labor together. And what we've talked about so far is very explicitly the first week we saw where we were united by the gospel. And we looked at chapter 1 verse 18 where it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And, and friends, I don't know if you need a memory verse for your life right now, but that's one I would encourage you just to grab hold of, to capture on a business card or some kind of flash card, or just put it on a note and regularly reference it, because that's one of the defining parameters that we're going to talk about throughout this study. And then in chapter 2, last week, we looked at how the Spirit is the very power within us that unites us. And here's what uh, Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 15, about the work of the Spirit in God's people. He says this, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So if you need a second memory verse, there's a second memory verse for you to take and to understand that it is the work of the gospel, it is the word of the cross, and it is the filling of the Holy Spirit that bring us this togetherness in the gospel. And when we come to chapter 3, Paul begins to move directly head on into the divisions or the problems that are taking place in the Corinthian church. You see, he, he notices that there's factions, there's divisions. And the whole purpose or the whole reason for these factions is that people have brought a worldly perspective into application in the midst of the church. Instead of taking from the church a godly perspective and applying it in the world. And what we're going to see today in chapter 3 are five shifts as Paul confronts the Corinthian church, he's going to encourage them to move from their worldly perspective to a godly perspective so that the church can be built up and so that the church can have the witness and the influence that God intends for it to have in the world. I want you to see today that God builds His church by uniting His servants to labor in His wisdom. 
That God builds the church by uniting his servants to labor in his wisdom. And I'm going to offer to you five shifts today that every person must make in order to move from worldly to godly wisdom and to build God's temple. Now, each person must make each of the five shifts. But likely what you will find is that one or more is especially challenging for you. Maybe it's something you've not thought of. Maybe it's something you've not fully embraced or believed in in God's Word. Or maybe it's just something that for the first time today, you've never heard it before until now. But here's the point. I want you to ask yourself throughout the message today, which of these shifts do I need to most focus on in my life, in my thinking, and in my serving? Which of these shifts? Do I need most to focus on in my life, in my thinking, and in my serving? Let's look at shift number one. And in order to do so, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Being merely human. The first shift that you must make in order to move from worldly wisdom to godly wisdom is what I call the shift of nature. From being merely human to gospel-centered, spirit-fueled people. It's the shift of our nature. That's what Paul says. You see, this first shift is about recognizing the new person that God has made us into in Jesus Christ. That we might live out of our new nature. And this is the root problem in Corinth. But listen, friends, this is the root problem in every church that has ever existed. When we live out of our flesh instead of living out of the Spirit who lives in us. We need a shift of nature in the church. Paul addresses the two, or excuse me, the main problem in the Corinthian church. And he says, I have to address you as infants instead of as growing Christians, just as I had to do when I was with you. You see, the point is this. It's not that they're not Christians, but as Christians, they've continued to live as though they weren't. That's the real issue. They continued to live out of their flesh. And divisions always arise when Christians persist to live in the flesh. And what happens is divisions in the church begin to stunt the growth of the church because people aren't submitted to God, they're submitted to self. And Christians who live out of the flesh deny their new identity and they thwart the growth, not only in their own life. What did he say? I have to treat you as infants because that's what you're acting like. So they thwart growth in their own life and subsequently also in the church. You see, friends, jealousy and strife that was among them demonstrated that their desires and their lives were driven by the flesh. Tensions and competitions always exist when the flesh is driving us. 
And the divisions arise out of these tensions and out of these competitions. And they, they, they cause us to want to choose sides to, to validate our opinions or to fortify our positions. You see, we don't need a specific issue to arise because the flesh has the innate capacity to create a division out of any issue. And here's what Paul calls this, being merely human. You're just being merely human. And you see, friends, the problem is that there's nothing wrong with being human. That's what we are, right? The problem is when we are merely human. Because God didn't redeem us to be merely human, but God created us as humans. But He saves us to redeem our humanity and live as spiritual people. That's the whole work of the gospel, and that's the reason the Spirit lives in us. Listen, there's two distinctives to guide Christians in unity to destroy these divisions. And I've already given them to you in the verses for memory. The first one is the word of the cross. The word of the cross is a phrase that basically represents what we understand as the gospel today. It's the word that God proclaimed and declared when Jesus hung on the cross about the condemnation ultimately of sin and the salvation that he offers in the face of it. But the word of the cross centers the Christian life and it centers the church. It is at our core. It is the very heart of who we are. You see, the gospel is what sources the Christian life for health, for growth, and for our maturity. And the gospel, no matter how old you get, the gospel provides unlimited power and a bottomless source of wisdom for the person who would dare to mine its riches and to plunge its depths. For the gospel to the non-Christian and to the baby Christian is milk that is so necessary. But the longer a person lives by the word of the cross, the more it becomes a fillet with sweet potato on the side and asparagus and cinnamon. And, well, you get what I'm saying, right? I don't need to get lost in that. That's the first distinctive is that the word of the cross centers the Christian life and it centers the church. But the second distinctive is this, that the Holy Spirit empowers Christians to live in godly wisdom by discerning all of life. And then it guards us from the worldly wisdom being able to cast any condemnation upon us that might stick. That's what chapter 2 verse 15 says to us. For the Christian who walks in the Spirit enjoys the intimacy of God's presence and the fellowship among God's people. You see, friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, no matter how much you enjoy what is taking place in this room among these people, it is not supplying to you what it is to those of us who are living in community And the fellowship that it brings with one another. It's not just good for us. It is a genuine source from God of life to us. To be in fellowship with one another. You see, when Christians live gospel-centered, spirit-filled lives, they put down their personal agendas and competitions to build up together with one another in the church. That's what Paul is saying 
in this first shift of nature. God leads Christians to shift from living as merely human to living gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-filled lives. The second shift that we will see today continues in verses 5 through 9. Look at the word with me there. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see, Paul says God's doing something through both of our labors, and it's not something individual, it's something united. The second shift is a shift of perspective. It's a shift in the way that we view what God is doing in the church. And we have to move from choosing sides to understanding that all are serving God's work in the church. This second shift is about how we view all that is happening in the church. Because all that gets done in the church among the people of God is for one reason. So that God can do What only God can do. Listen, friends, everything else is a setup. God is the main feature. Amen? Everything you do for the hour and a half you will be on this campus today is for one reason. It's to watch God do what only God can do. And there won't be anybody on this campus that takes the place of what God wants to do. But everyone who serves together will be a part of what God is doing. And that's what Paul is saying to them. He's addressing them at the very root of their division. They were reflecting the world by judging people with their privileges, with their worldly status, and with their worldly wealth. It's not unknown that people who study Paul and study Apollos see two very different kind of men. Apollos was very polished in the world's term. The way he spoke was with terms and terminologies that appealed to them and that understood them. And I'm not saying anything against Apollos. He was a very effective laborer for the gospel. But Paul was a little rough around the edges. Paul was the kind of guy that would beat his chest and go, you want a piece of this? You know, I'll give you a piece of this. You know, and that's exactly what Paul's doing here. These words are not without tension. Because they're not just tearing down Paul's ministry. They're trying to completely discredit Paul by the building up of their worldly wisdom fortifications. And Paul says, look, the problem is not between Apollos and I and which is better and which should win. The problem is that you're creating a division that's not there. You're fracturing the people. They chose the leaders in the church that they wanted to follow by the same standard that they were imposing from their worldly wisdom upon the church. Instead of looking at the word of God and considering what it said in order to let that lead them in the way they followed and served in the church. This is important. Leaders didn't create the divisions. The problem was not with Paul and Apollos or any other of the leaders. The problem was with those in the church who had their own agenda. 
who had their own platform that they were trying to build and they had to create divisions to try and uh, 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 lead the people away. They were trying to satisfy their demand for and their competition that was held from a worldly perspective. Listen, this is not that unknown to us today. One of the greatest temptations of the church is to exalt its leaders to a status that they can worship them. That's why churches get so crushed when human pastors fail. That's why churches leave pastors alone, thinking they don't need help. I'm the one in need of help. I go to them for help. And then they act devastated when moral failure enters into the picture. Are you kidding me? They were a man to begin with, and we are people, humans. The problem is we're as able to act merely human as any person listening to us at any given moment. So what I'm telling you is don't think so highly of us. Right? At the same time, I'll not hesitate to tell you, preaching out of another passage, you should rightly honor your leaders. Those aren't in contradiction to one another. They're to be held with a common understanding about what it's all about. You see, when Christians hold to worldly values, they reduce the church to just another venue in which they can satisfy fleshly pleasures. Paul reminds the Corinthians and he reminds us that all work served one purpose. That true servants always direct their work to the right object of glory. No one in the church was responsible for the growth. Why? Because God alone gives the growth. And that's the shift right there of perspective, friends. That's the shift in our perspective. God uses the labors of all his people in the church, but it's always God that gives the growth. Always. When the church is united, every servant serves one Lord. And we must understand that the ultimate goal is greater than any one achieving over another. When people rest and trust in the unity that the Spirit brings to us through the gospel, there's no need to celebrate one servant or one ministry over another. When leaders rest and trust in unity, they're free to serve one another and not compete with one another. Listen, friends, don't bring a holier-than-thou perspective to the church. Monday through Sunday, we're as human as you are. If you don't believe me, show up to staff meeting one week and you will meet a rainbow of personalities called reality, right? And that's the point of it. Leaders, leaders must lead out of unity or the church will never live in unity. If the elder table is in disunity, the church is going to be fracturing. If the staff table is operating in disunity, or fracturing, the church will be living out those divisions. That's what Paul is saying. Unity, friends, frees everyone to serve together, knowing that every servant will receive his reward from God. God's the one taking care as he assigns. Let him worry about that. Let us just give ourselves to serving him. You see, when everyone serves together, God gives the growth. We don't have to question if this happens while we serve, while we wait, and while we watch because we want God to show up. 
Because we want God to do what God does because no one else can do what God does. And when the church shifts from choosing sides to united servants that exalt God's work, everyone focuses on one unifying glory that God works among his people to do what only he can do. May this be the mantra of this church that God showed up and he gave the growth. And may the, the defining motivation for everything we do in each of our individual labors be this. I am doing what I am doing because God has ordained me for this time and for this purpose to do what he's led me to do. But we're all peaked with anticipation today because we want God to show up. And if God doesn't show up, we've wasted our time. We've wasted our energy. But God. But only God gives the growth. That, that, that but God moment. It's the moment in every story in which we await. It's not a random moment that should surprise us. But it is the modus operandi that unites us. See, some of you didn't think I could speak Latin. It's just the way we operate as the church. It's not, it's not a special Sunday that we host once a year. It's the way God wants us to work every day and every week of the year. He wants to show up more than we care for him to show up. And so wherever you are, whatever you do, whomever you are with, no matter what happens, we serve to await God's work that gives the growth. That's who we are. And that's how we perceive all that we do. God builds his church when Christians shift from choosing sides to all serve God's work that only he can do. The third shift is in verses 10 through 17. Look with me there. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Pause there for a moment. Look with me at the third shift. This is what I call the shift of purpose. It is very closely aligned to the second shift, but it advances it to another degree. The shift of purpose is when we move from competition to take care in each of us how we serve. It's when we move from competition to take care in how we serve. This third shift brings a strong sense of personal responsibility for how each person serves so the church can flourish. Paul reminds the Corinthians of his work. 
in order for them to be able to evaluate their own work and their motives. He said this, I laid the only foundation that there is, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Some have tried to establish other foundations, and they've misled people. Some have mocked the church by using the church for selfish gain, for indulgence, for pleasure, for self-help, for self-advancement. And Paul warns that both of these would only hurt themselves and the church. And eventually and ultimately they would be discovered. For he uses a term, the day, when the day comes. In other words, that's a reference to God's appointed time when he will come and he will exercise perfect judgment over all things. And on that day, true motives of service would be revealed and would be rewarded accordingly. You see, friends, we do await Jesus in his revealing that we might be rewarded by him. That's a legitimate motivation for us. The problem is when we try to get the reward before Jesus has returned. Grace doesn't come to us by our service, but our reward does come through service, which is always the fruit of God's grace that is in our life. One may slight the Lord in serving him for a time, but only service that honors him will last and produce an eternal reward for your life and ultimately for this church. Let me grant to you three confessions that help us make this shift to heed Paul's counsel. And we find them in the first verse, chapter 10 of this section. First of all, that God's grace is the source for all of our abilities, both natural abilities and talent and spiritual giftings. You see, when we believe that our service gets supplied by our ability, we dismiss God and we bolster our own pride through self-sufficiency. I got this, God. I don't need you. God never wants to hear that from you. I don't care how simple, how minuscule the task, God wants you to intentionally apply His grace in order to apply your life. I can still hear my mother's voice telling me, Lane, God gave you your natural talents to use for His glory. If you don't use them, you will lose them. Mom, I am not going to go practice the piano. I don't care how many times you say that. I won. It only took 11 years to convince her, right? Moms and dads, let me ask you a point of application. Will God receive glory from your child's life because you formed their thinking to serve him with the way he created them? 46 years old, and I still hear my mother's voice. In a lot of ways, but that way specifically. You see, Christians serve out of the supply of grace that God gives. Anything less is insufficient for the church. The second confession that he makes is not only that God's grace is the source, but but that we serve to hone our craft to mastery. To hone our craft like a skilled master craftsman. You see, friends, grace is never a justification for laziness. No matter what you do in the church, every person should study and practice to master their service, to master their craft, to hone their skill. My mother also taught me that Jesus deserves your best in everything you do. 
And friends, when when the church gets your last effort instead of your best, and especially when the church tolerates laziness from its leaders, that is an abhorrent false witness to to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It just shouldn't be allowed. But we tolerate it because if you don't mess with my junk, I won't mess with yours. And that is counter gospel. Is denying the spirits. The third confession he makes is that we serve in such a way to ensure that when others build on our service, it makes their serving stronger, more encouraging, and more glorious. That's right. When I do what I do, and then you go and do what you do, you do it better because I did it the best I could. And that carries out in every life of the church. When we base our serving on these three confessions, it shifts our purpose to take care how we serve. You see, a faithful confession shapes our serving as much as our serving manifests a true confession of Jesus' lordship in our life. Servants give careful attention to how they serve for the sake of a faithful testimony to Jesus. Paul didn't say he was a skilled master craftsman, but his work was like. He, made, he used a metaphor to make a point. You see, skilled master craftsmen do not achieve that title without careful attention to every detail practiced over an extended period of time and with many failures and imperfections. Let's go. Let's get after it. Because the longer we sit, the longer we forego our mastery. Few, friends, few will be labored as master among the masses of the world. Few of you will list as your Twitter bio, I am a master usher at LifePoint. I've mastered it. I've got my certificate hanging on the wall and there's not a seat that I'm not able to fill when people walk through the door. Throwing some baseball signs down to usher them over. We've got two right here. On the left side, right on the aisle. Bring them in and land them. You know what I mean? Hey, I don't want that in the church. That's weird. Right? we got a master coffee server, right? I mean, they can pick it up and turn it and bam, drop it. And I mean, before you're right, mm -mm, no, that's not what I'm talking about, friends. But I am talking about that the energy and the intentionality with which we serve is the same as a master craftsman would apply to his skill. Anyone can give careful attention to how they serve so that it matters to faithfully represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And the skill and craft of a master demonstrates much about the craftsman. Your serving says something about you and what you believe about the Lord Jesus. When we recognize that Jesus is the only foundation and that all serving extends from him, then what we do and how we do it becomes of utmost importance. We can let go of competition and strive to excel for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the church. And when built on the foundation of the gospel, 
Every act of service bears witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I've tried to drill this into our heads and into the mantra of our people and into the, the culture of our leadership and our fellowship. That Listen, I don't care what you do and I don't care how minuscule you may think it is. There's not a handshake and there's not a hug that happens on this campus that can't be done to the glory of God. There's not a greeting that can't be extended and there's not a prayer that can't be offered that doesn't make eternal significance in someone that walked onto this campus wondering if God had anything good to give to them today. And your warm hand may be the very shattering of that barrier between that person and God. You don't even have to be in an official capacity to offer it. You see, when we build with precious and valuable materials... Testing refines to greater beauty and glory. Sometimes precious and valuable materials are finely tuned messages. And sometimes they're finely tuned strings on an instrument. And sometimes they're just perfectly timed hugs and handshakes. When our serving is built on the Lord Jesus, it it removes the pressure to perform perfectly in the moment. Because Jesus is using it for an eternal impact. It doesn't mean that the testing won't be hard. It does mean that it will result in greater beauty and reward. And that will prove that it was worth it. You see, true servants serve out of their love for the Lord Jesus. And in anticipation of his great reward. Let me ask you this, friends. How is your serving? Are other people blessed and Jesus adorned because you served them with your craft? Is life point more eternally beautiful because of your service? Here's the third shift. God wants his people to live out his eternal purpose in life and to serve for glory that he might reward them. The fourth shift is what I call the shift of focus. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. Do you not know? That you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This fourth shift moves us to understand it's not about me, it's about we. So each person can give priority to the gathering, to the service, and to the ministry of the church. This shift represents a major change of focus for us. And the church must train every person To this, we are not purveyor of services in the church in order to improve your life, but we are a people of redemption within which God wants to radically alter the course of your life. Friends, if redemption to godliness and holiness is not your aim, then you're worshiping the wrong God. I come here every week expecting God to do a radical change in my heart. And sometimes I immediately recognize it. Most times it's more seismic and I have to come to an understanding of where it's leading me. The only thing crazier than the promise that God might make one of us holy is this. That by faith in Jesus he would dare to make us all holy. That's just nuts. That's exactly what he's done. Christian, God's spirit lives in you and builds you together with his people for his holy purposes. Every you in verse 16 and 17 here is plural. So therefore, I'm going to take a moment and talk about it. What does this mean for us? 
I'm going to do a little exercise if I can get sunshine to help me. I want to say this to you. This is what it means for us. God's not talking to you, singular, but to you, plural. You, singular, are part of what God is saying and doing, but you, plural, are his temple. Ones he is building into one holy dwelling. You, singular, are important to God, but you are his glorious place of habitation. And each of you must shift your focus to make you priority for his glory. God's glory, what we most desire, is most powerful when His temple is fully intact. Without fracture, without division, without crack, without weakness. Friends, the gathered body of Christ is God's precious temple, His dwelling place. Never come into this house and fail to expect God to show up in His temple. You hear that? Do not penetrate the walls of this building through the doors provided Preferably. And not expect God to show up in his people who are gathered inside. Look around. God is up to something big. Bigger than you and bigger than me. And what this verse says about the people in this church shatters any self-serving focus one could hold for the church. For one more time, let's play our game. When you get together. You should come peaked with great anticipation and expectation. God is uniquely present with eternal glory among the gathering of His saints in the local church. And people who live as mere human beings in the church and work their wiles to create divisions will answer directly to God for it. When you mess with the church out of personal and worldly values and ways, you pick a fight with God. And God doesn't put up with those who work to destroy His temple. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural, are that temple. The fourth shift is that God desires that His people live as one, where His presence is most powerful and His glory most potent. Let's look at the fifth shift, and I'll bring it to a conclusion. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things, friends. Oh, here's our Greek lesson. You know what that word all means? You know all. Here's the fifth shift. It's the shift of conviction from worldly wisdom to God boasting. This is the cumulative shift of all the others where what we understand about God and about ourselves and about God's work becomes the defining conviction of our life. This is where we judge all things by spiritual discernment through the word of the cross that we might enjoy all things in order to boast 
in God. Paul's teaching cannot remain a theoretical concept for you to weigh against other worldly theories. He warns that no one allow themselves to be deceived in this way. Rather, worldly wisdom is a snare that always catches. And those thoughts are already known by God and already proven to be worthless. Worldly wisdom is folly to God that only leads to futility in your life. The only wisdom that matters is worthy of our eternal boasting. And when we live in godly wisdom, all of life is an opportunity to boast in God. Nothing is outside of his domain, is outside of his control when it's been gospelly filtered and spiritually discerned. For the eternal redemption that God works through Jesus Christ provides an unlimited supply of boasting material like social media for preaching. God's grace blowing up in us is unlimited material for praise and glory unto him. Let me ask you, friends, as the worship team returns, has God boasting become the defining conviction of your life? Do you walk around each and every day looking for where you're going to brag on God with your next breath? Do you come into the church not just for what you can do and for what you can offer to show others, but to see through your doing and through the doing of all what God wants to do in our midst today? Is that your defining conviction? And I don't mean just something you believe in. I mean something that is so gut-wrenching to you when you get up on Sunday morning because you're going to meet with God's people. It changes the way that you go about everything you do. And when you walk out of here on Sunday and your feet hit the ground on Monday morning, you're looking for what God wants to do because the church is not contained in the walls of the building. And when we are sent out into the world, do you walk into your workplace? Do you walk into your recreation? Do you walk into your entertainment? Do you walk into your marriage? Do you walk into your home with your children just wondering what God wants to do and faithfully serving so that you can pique yourself with anticipation that God's going to show up? That's the conviction with which God wants you to live your life. And he wants you to move from worldly wisdom to godly wisdom. By the word of the cross, by the filling of his spirit. Let me ask you this today. Have you submitted your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ by faith through the word of the cross? That because of your sin, you deserve to die because you can't pay the debt that God demands from you because of your sin. But when you stand before God, you would say to him, I can't but I trust that Christ has. If today for the first time you would want to say that, I want to invite you to receive the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior and to move from trusting yourself to trusting Him, to put your faith in Jesus to become a Christian. Christian, if you're here today and you know that you've just been living in the flesh, you made a decision about Jesus and you were genuine with that decision. But that decision hasn't made any difference in the way you're thinking, in the way you're living, in the way you're walking every day of your life. But you would say today, I know that the Spirit of God is speaking to me and the word of the cross needs to become the defining word for everything that I do. And I want to surrender my own will where I'm living out of my flesh and what I think and what the world imposes on me. And I'm going to begin to just be absorbing the Word of God and letting it read me as I read it and let me live out as I'm trying to live in that Word. What about it today, Christian? What, what area of your life 
Which one of these shifts do you look at and most go, man, I'm totally locked into worldly wisdom right there, and I need to move today. I want you to know that's where the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning, and I do not want you to walk away from here without saying, I'll move today. Not because of me, but because only God can give the growth. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? God, would you help us today as you so want to? Not to look to ourselves, not to look to our schedules, and not to look to our priorities in this moment, but to look to you. And to put our hope and our faith in you in all things. In all things. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Friends,